Welcome everyone. Hanukkah begins this evening. So as I said last week, I wanted to do some Hanukkah teachings today. And actually, as I was preparing, I said, I have, there's more, there's more, than, an, more than an hour here. So next Thursday is also still Hanukkah. So I think we'll do it twice. So I, I hope everyone is, um, what is the right thing to say these days? Doing okay. Um, and uh, here's what I want to do with you all. So for some of you, this won't be new, but I think it's always good. Remaining sane, Joan, that's, the, that's right. Are you remaining sane? I hope so. And no, sorry, Lloyd. Well, at least I hope it's not a, uh, a, a destructive insanity, just a, a, something else. <laughs> um, but we'll be distracted nicely by diving into the origins of Hanukkah, meaning beautiful teachings about it in the next couple of weeks. And as I was reviewing and studying, I realized that even if some of you have heard this um, before, uh, it, it, it's good to repeat. And that is uh, what I think some friend of mine called Hanukkah for grownups, the story of Hanukkah for grownups, which means taking some time uh, today to look at what we know about the history and origins and development of this festival, which I find to be really fascinating and actually illuminating um, about uh, how about how how cultures and traditions survive and uh, evolve, and certainly in this case, a case study about Judaism that's quite fascinating to me. So we're gonna put on our, our kind of history hats today uh, and um, take a look um, at uh, what we know about um, the origins of Hanukkah. So the first thing to say, and we'll probably come back to this uh, in uh, the next week's class, is that certain holidays in the Jewish tradition are considered to be from God, biblically ordained. And those are the holidays that are mentioned in the Torah. That means Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Passover, and Shavuot. Those are the holidays described in the Torah and they are considered to be, you could say biblically ordained, min hashamayim, from God's, you know, from divine, divinely created, because that's the way the tradition looks at it. And then there are holidays in the Jewish calendar that are not from the Torah. And those most famously are Hanukkah and Purim, which become part of the sacred Jewish calendar but occupy a different um, niche in that 
they're based on stories that come after the Torah. Now, even though the book of Esther is included in the Hebrew Bible, it's not in the Torah. And the book of Esther is um, fascinating in that God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. God's presence in Esther is completely um, hidden, absent, whatever. There's nothing, no God. So it's not a God-given holiday, right? <laughs> in fact, at the end of the book of Esther, it says, and Mordechai and Esther sent out a letter to all the Jews in the empire and beyond saying that this day forever will be a festival of Purim. And the people accepted it and took it on. So Purim's explicit about being a humanly ordained festival. And Hanukkah is a festival, again, in which in the story, God doesn't make an appearance in the Hanukkah story. It is a festival that is created by human effort and sacrifice. And so um, uh, I just wanted to point that out. So these are, these are sort of two different categories. That's why in in Jewish practice, we stop work on the biblically ordained holidays and festivals, but we are not commanded to stop working on Hanukkah or Purim. And uh, um, as, again, we're taking an evolutionary historical look at Judaism today, there are, there, there were days uh, the other, the other um, biblically ordained most important day is Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, when we're commanded to fast. That day was not ordained in biblical times. Um, and then there are additional smaller, minor fast days that are on the calendar. Everything that's on the Jewish calendar uh, besides the biblically ordained festivals. Simchat Torah is probably, it doesn't emerge until late antiquity or the early Middle Ages as a festival day. Um, and uh, as you watch the Jewish calendar evolve over time historically, there are days mentioned in the Talmud, some, you know, something called Nicanor's day. He was a general who won a battle that nobody else. Oh, right, Paul says the new moon, Rosh Chodesh. Um, uh, it says you shall sanctify the new moon. So yes, Rosh Chodesh is biblically ordained in a minor, uh, called minor holiday, but ongoing. Thank you, Paul. Uh, so that um, when you study, again, Judaism from an historical lens, here in the 20th century, we now have new Jewish sacred days that we don't know whether what will happen in terms of looking back a few centuries from now, whether they'll remain on the calendar or not. It, it, Holocaust Remembrance Day, Israeli Independence Day. Um, so that's that's the way that's that's what a living culture does. So now, back in the second century BCE, in Judea. Judea being a province of, at that point, um, 
the Seleucid Empire. Okay. The Jews have not had sovereignty, independence since the year 586 BCE, some 400 years earlier, when the monarchy of David, which had been in, um, uh, in control of the land of Judea for several centuries, was destroyed and exiled to Babylonia. Uh, Myrna says, it's interesting that Hanukkah is the time of winter solstice and Purim is the time of Mardi Gras. It certainly is. And I think those, and those analogies, those not analogies, those concurrences will uh, become clear that, uh, that like all, all Jewish festivals, pretty much, they are building on larger, larger um, uh, uh, events of uh, the entire ancient Near East. Um, and we'll talk about that as we get to the origins of Hanukkah. And Susan Falk said, wasn't it considered a miracle that the everlasting light burned for eight days, even though there wasn't enough oil? Perfect. Hold on to that question because um, it's actually not part of the origin story. It comes in later. And that's partly why I enjoy giving this teaching. So remember that, Susan. That's why we have our history hats on today. And what is the written source for a Hanukkah festival if not in the Bible? Great question, Kimberly. Hold on to that too, okay? Thanks. These are perfect questions. Um, I would say that often written sources might be written in order to explain a festival that already exists sometimes and not the other way around. That festivals can arise organically uh, and then have things written about them as stories get attached to them. And uh, Rabbi Robert Lefkowitz says, shouldn't we light eight candles and dwindle it down to one? Well, we're not gonna talk about that today because uh, I'm gonna stick with history for today, but probably next time we will talk about it. Okay, so the Jews haven't had sovereignty for 400 years. They were exiled to Babylonia in the sixth century BCE. They returned some of them from Babylonian exile and reestablished um, a Jewish um, province in Judea under the Persian Empire in maybe the sixth, fifth century BCE. And then for the next several centuries, the Jews of Judea were an, autonom an autonomous society, but under the rule of the empire du jour, whether it was the Persians, uh, um, Alexander the Great, or Alexander's offspring, who divided the Alexandrian Empire into three different empires. By the second century BCE, the Jews of Judea 
were part of the Seleucid Empire, which was based up in Syria and ruled by an historical figure, Antiochus, Antiochus, who appears in the Hanukkah story, um, who was the emperor of the Seleucid Empire. The Jews had the autonomy of being able to um, run their own affairs as long as they paid taxes and they, were in and they had control of their temple. And remember in ancient times, the temple on the holy mountain, that was the seat of the society, of the religion, of the culture. And it was controlled by families of Kohanim, priests, who ran the affairs of the temple. In the 150 years since Alexander the Great had brought Hellenism, Greek culture and ways into the entire Near East, right? And Mediterranean basin, Greek had become the language spoken in everyday life. And Greek customs and practices had become mainstream. The upper classes, the educated folks, and we're talking about a very small town society, Judea at this time. Jerusalem being its capital was not a metropolis. It was us, it, was a, it wasn't, wasn't a huge city, but everybody wanted to be Greek, right? Just like today, they wanted to, they wanted to have, um, uh, know English today. They wanna to watch our movies. They wanna, you know, it, was, it wasn't just political, it was cultural hegemony. And many Jews were abandoning traditional Jewish practices and ways in favor of Hellenism. Hellenism had a lot to offer, philosophy, uh, sports. Um, it, was, it was just the thing, right? Especially it would appear in the urban areas. And there was already great conflict within this small place called Judea, between those who felt like the, uh, the traditions were being uh, watered down, sullied, um, um, desecrated by Hellenizing Jews, including the priestly class in Jerusalem. And those, who, and, and it was, there was a lot of civil strife over this. Antiochus brought it to a boiling point because it's hard to know, you know exactly what motivated him, but he decided to, um, and this part you'll know from the story. Uh, hold on, I just wanna make sure I have my sources in hand. Uh, he had decreed that local religions, including Judaism, be rooted out and that circumcision, kosher food and Shabbat were outlawed by Antiochus. Pagan rituals and sacrifices were instituted at the Holy Temple in Jerusalem and at shrines throughout the land. Many Jews followed the direction and obeyed the decrees of Antiochus, of Antiochus. And there was a priestly family, Mattathias and his sons, living in the countryside who were horrified 
and started a military insurrection. This, we, this is the, we know this story of the Maccabees. The question is, and they fought for three years and they succeeded. They succeeded. The, historically, it might've been because Antiochus was preoccupied with conflicts on other borders. That's often when um, small time insurrections succeed, right? Uh, we don't know exactly. Um, you can also claim it was a miracle, which it certainly, you know, but we're talking history now. So that doesn't mean I'm denying miracles. I'm just talking history. And um, by 166 BCE, the Maccabees had retaken Jerusalem and went about cleansing the temple of um, pagan shrines, of uh, they, they took down the altar, which they felt had been desecrated and rebuilt a new one. They, um, and they held a festival. They held a dedication ceremony. And remember Hanukkah means dedication. That's what Hanukkah means. Hanukkah is the dedication ceremony where they dedic dedicated or rededicated the temple for the traditional sacrifices that had been suspended for several years during this insurrection. And they took over Judea in the year 166. And this festival they held, they called Hanukkah and it was eight days long. And it began on the 25th of Kislev, which is what tonight is on the Jewish calendar. The question that's fascinating to me is how do we know this? And as some of you know, there was an almost contemporaneous book written within decades of these events, two books actually called the Book of Maccabees, two different versions. There's one called Maccabees one and one called Maccabees two. And they're two different literary creations, but they echo each other's histories in a lot of ways. Maybe they were, um, what do you call it? Uh, um, commissioned by the uh, Maccabees who had, who not only rededicated the temple and instituted uh, the priesthood there again, but also became the monarchs of Judea. The first time the Jewish people had been independent for 400 years. No wonder a holiday was decreed. This was an astonishing accomplishment. The, the Hasmonean house, the Maccabees dynasty would last for about a hundred years before it gets overthrown by the emerging Roman empire. Um, and, uh, in fact, the Jewish people will not be independent, self-governing in their own land until 1948, which is pretty astonishing just to even say those words again. I don't know, I don't know what other people kind of can, can talk in these terms, 
oh yeah, we lost our sovereignty for 400 years, but then we got it back for 100 years. And then we lost it for 2000 years, but now we have got it back again for the last 70. It's crazy. It's just crazy. And we're still here to tell the tale. Um, okay. So the books of the Maccabees, and this for the for the for the folks who don't know about this is worth telling you about. The books of the Maccabees may have been written originally in Hebrew, but they only survived in Greek. And they are historical accounts of the battle I just described. What I just described, we know about primarily because of the book of the Maccabees. The book of the Maccabees is not in the Bible. And a great question is, why not? In fact, the book of the Maccabees survived only in Greek because the Jews of the Hellenistic world outside of Israel spoke basically only Greek. And say the Jews of Alexandria and Egypt and in other Jewish communities embraced these books and kept them. And when many of these Jews in the ensuing centuries were converted to Christianity, they brought these books with them. And the books of the Maccabees survived in the Christian Bible. Never in the Jewish Bible. They are called intertestamental books. They are books that post-date the Hebrew scriptures and predate the gospels in that period of time that we're talking about the second, first century BCE. So they exist as essentially semi-canonical books in the Christian Bible, the intertestamental literature they're called. But Jews didn't read. In the centuries that followed, the Jews didn't read these books. They didn't know Greek. It was the Christian Bible. The book of Maccabees was not part of the Jewish um, understanding of Hanukkah until the late 19th century. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to jump all the way there yet, but I just want you to know that. In the book of the Maccabees, I'm going to read you a little excerpt. And I want to recommend a book that some of you know about. It's called Seasons of Our Joy. There it is. By Arthur Waskow. Um, he wrote it in the 1980s. And it's, um, it's not... Um, dated. It reads beautifully. I still just love learning from Arthur from this book. Uh, Susan says, the Christians don't celebrate it, do they? No, they do not. But they retained the story of it. Uh, only the Jews continued to celebrate it, but did not retain the story. Um, not as it's written in the book of Maccabees. For example, here in this excerpt of the book of Maccabees, it describes how Judah, Maccabee and his brothers recaptured Jerusalem 
went up to the temple, found it profaned, did everything we know about cleaning it, uh, etc. They rebuilt the altar. They lit the lamps. Here, I'll read it to you. They burnt incense on the altar and lit the lamps on the lampstand to shine within the temple. The lampstand in Hebrew is menorah, okay? Which was one of the sacred, part of the sacred furniture of the temple. It's all described in great detail in the book of Exodus, how to construct these uh, and, and, and lay out all the sacred um, objects in the inner sanctum of the temple, including the seven branched menorah. Uh, when they had put the bread of the presence on the table and hung the curtains, just as it describes in the Bible and book of Exodus, the work was completed. Then early, early on the 25th day of the ninth month, the month Kislev, in the year 164 BCE, sacrifice was offered as the law commands on the newly made altar of burnt offering. On the anniversary of the day when the Gentiles had profaned it, on that very day, it was rededicated with hymns of thanksgiving to the music of harps and lutes and cymbals, just the way you would it's described in the Bible. They were, they were rededicating their temple according to the instructions in the Torah. And all the people prostrated themselves, worshiping and praising heaven that their cause had prospered. They celebrated the rededication of the altar for eight days. There was great rejoicing as they brought burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings. They decorated the front of the temple with wreaths and they renewed the gates and the priest's rooms and fitted them with doors. There was great merrymaking among the people and the disgrace brought on them by the Gentiles was removed. Then Judah, his brothers and the whole congregation of Israel decreed that the rededication of the altar, Chanukah in Hebrew, should be observed with joy and gladness at the same time each year for eight days beginning on the 25th day of Kislev. That's a direct quote from the book of Maccabees. And as you might guess, what's missing from this account? I'm sure some of you said miracle of light. There's no- Nothing. No Ness. Nothing. No mention of a little cruise of oil burning for eight days. And nothing, nothing in the contemporaneous accounts. I always love finding that out. We only hear about that some three centuries later in the Talmud, four centuries later in the Talmud. Uh, so there's something going on here. But I want to talk about this line first. 25th day of Kislev on the anniversary of the day when the Gentiles had profaned it. What, what's going on? The Gentiles had done something on the previous 25th of Kislev. What do you think, what do you think that was? I can't hear you, Bobby. You're either gonna have to unmute yourself or type. Yes, Bobby? Sukkah, the, the eight days of Sukkot. Ah, 
but Sukkot, Sukkot, is is two months earlier in Tishrei uh, in 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 um, Tishrei. Okay. So there is a connection between Hanukkah and Sukkot, but what? But they are doing something specifically, as we say in Hebrew, Davka, on the twenty yeah. fifth of Kislev, because the Book of Maccabees tells us that the previous year, on that day, the Gentiles had desecrated Ellen. Oh, it's okay. There's a whole thing about Sukkot and Kislev because they couldn't celebrate. Yeah, so, but the question is why they're doing it. I didn't sit, go on because you were taking us in a different direction. We're going to get to that. <laughs> on the 25th of Kislev was the 25th of which was a um, solstice festival, all, all Hellenistic and Persian. There was a worship and sacrifice to the sun god. It was a, there, this was, the, the, in the Roman times, which come on the wake of this and adopt all of the Hellenistic customs, this was the solstice festival. So ironically, Davka, on the Gentile Hellenistic solstice festival, which had been marked in the temple, the Maccabees wanted to, rededicate um, wanted to rededicate the temple to Jewish practice on that day. And the way they did it was that because they the temple had been defiled and they hadn't had access to it for two years, they hadn't been able to celebrate Sukkot. Sukkot being the great joyous pilgrimage festival, that happens in the fall, right after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur on the full moon of the equinox. And so instead, they dedicated the temple a postponed Sukkot celebration. But the day, the 25th, was not an accident, right? It, wasn't, it didn't just happen to be the day when the temple was finally ready. Okay, we did it, let's do it. It was the day when the year before the Gentiles had offered sacrifices to their gods because it was the, it was the common solstice festival. So Hanukkah occupied, start, Hanukkah was declared. Imagine, this is how I imagine it. This is, I can't prove this, but the analogy to modern times is irresistible. Imagine a holiday that everyone celebrates, everybody celebrates in your whole world on the 25th day of, right? Today it's December because the, the 25th of Kislev, the 25th of December, that, that's not an accident. In the Roman empire, this festival was shifted to the 25th of December, um, which the Christians, early Christians, in the Roman Empire, adopt in centuries to come as the birthday, it's the birth of the sun god, right? The 25th was the birth of the sun god. And so you can see how Jesus, baby Jesus could be seen in that light. 
and for the Jews, classically in Jewish history, it becomes a day of collective redemption and renewal. Um, so, so here you are, you're in this little Judean, I mean, the Jews were not a big deal in the second century BCE. Uh, and here you are in a world that's celebrating a festival on the 25th. And you say, we're gonna take this festival and make it our own. In fact, so that, imagine the Maccabees in Jerusalem where everyone's been celebrating this solstice festival for some time because it's a very Hellenized place. They say, we are going to institute a festival specifically at this moment so that we're celebrating our culture, not Hellenistic culture. That's, that's a very good surmise as to how Hanukkah got to be on the 25th. Does that, that make sense? Um, and I just love thinking about that. And so the Hasmoneans established Hanukkah on this specific date. And, uh, um, but what the, but what the, um, what the Hasmoneans do, the Maccabees do, there's no mention of an eight branched menorah. All they have is the six branched menorah. When I say eight, I'm talking about uh, four on the side and, and one in the middle, right? Just like the menorah in the, in the um, Torah has three on each side with one in the middle. They were rededicating that menorah and they lit it and then they celebrated for eight days. The whole custom of lighting one candle the first night, two the second, three the third, none of that is in the, the historical origin stories that we have in the book of Maccabees. So now we can turn our attention historically to, well, then how do we get to the Hanukkah we know? And again, a lot of this is, is, is conjecture, but hopefully educated. Um, guess what happens to the house of the Hasmoneans as they uh, take imperial, they take on the royal throne and control of the temple in the, as they uh, consolidate their power in this newly independent kingdom. The first thing they do is by declaring themselves both high priests and kings, they overturn one of the absolutely central tenets of the Torah's description of how to govern, how the children of Israel should govern themselves. They are to have a king and a high priesthood, not a high priest and king at the same time. And so the Hasmoneans centralize power in their family and they go on wars of conquest to expand their new kingdom and they within, uh, guess, power corrupts. <laughs> Do I need to say more? Um, and they consolidate power in the priestly caste, both the monarchy and the uh, priesthood. There are stories in the Mishnah, which is the rabbinic repository of literature about this era of one of the later um, um, 
Hasmonean rulers, Alexander Yanai, who, listen, his name is Alexander. He even takes a Greek name. Coming out to celebrate Sukkot, which is a big job of the high priest, and being pelted with etrogs by the crowd. Because they, you know, so we have that story. So there is a great conflict between now the um, consolidating power of the House of the Hasmoneans, the fact that they take on more and more of Hellenistic ways as, you know, these country bumpkins move into, because uh, uh, that's, that's what they were. They were country bumpkin priests, move into the palace, and boy, do we need, can, we can tell this story without even, we've seen it happen so many times. I mean, think about Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, right? Uh, this, this revolutionary leader who we were all in, uh, you know, most of us were enamored with in the 80s, who basically turned into a um, unbelievable tyrant hiring only people from his own family, consolidating all wealth in the government. It happened within the space of 30 years. It's a tragedy, but it's a predictable tragedy. Oh, okay, I needed to sigh. That's what happened to the Hasmoneans. We, the rabbis then, so, 160 BCE, 60 BCE, they, they fall. Um, over, the next, over the next couple hundred years, the rabbis become the opponents of the Hasmoneans and of the priestly caste in this sense, who have allied themselves with the greater imperial powers and who... Um, uh, are um, have sullied in the eyes of the rabbis once again that which had finally been redeemed. So we only hear about Hanukkah in the Talmud like this. What is the reason for Hanukkah? Our rabbis taught, and this is from the Talmud, so it's several, a few centuries later. Here's the story. On the 25th of Kislev, commence the days of Hanukkah, which are eight, on which lamentation for the dead and fasting are forbidden. For when the Greeks entered the temple, they defiled all the oils therein. And when the Hasmonean dynasty prevailed against and defeated them, they made search and found only one cruise of oil, which lay with the seal of the high priest but which contained sufficient for one day's lighting only. Yet a miracle was wrought therein, and they lit the lamp therewith for eight days. And these days were appointed a festival with the recital of, of Psalms and Thanksgiving. So the rabbis do mention the Hasmoneans and their military victory, but for the rabbis, the miracle of Hanukkah is this story about the cruise of oil that lasts for eight days. How do we explain this? Has the has, as what happens with so with so much of our 
and I don't say this negatively at all, with so much of our, our, our lore and holidays, do miracle stories emerge that kind of make it more primal, um, uh, mythic, uh, symbolic? I think so. I think instead of celebrating a military victory, which then gets reestablished on the giant solstice festival in order to be a bulwark against the larger uh, cultural um, uh, uh, forms, uh, now becomes a mythic story about the few against the many because the victory was miraculous. This was a band of country rebels throwing off the imperial rule, right? It was anti-colonialism with success. Um, and yet its aftermath was so predictably sordid and the holiday wasn't gonna go away. So it gets repurposed as a symbolic story of keeping the light alive, which is actually also true about what the Maccabees did, even if the outcome in the decades that followed was, was so disappointing and discouraging. But without the Maccabees, there'd be no story. We wouldn't be here to tell it. The civil war might've been lost and Judaism might have ended. So yes, it was a miracle. And that miracle gets translated into the story about the light that was only supposed to last one day, but miraculously kept burning. And out of this practice emerges all the customs of Hanukkah, an eight-branched candelabra instead of the seven-branched one, the six-branched one that uh, stood in the temple. Uh, and customs start to emerge about Hanukkah that are all about celebrating the miracle that there's that when that if you, that of of having um, of the few into the many, the hands of the, the of the few succeeding the many, the weak defeating the powerful, the light defeating the darkness. But the story of the Maccabees, and I still have a little time, so I can kind of tell you about this, isn't told. And this is where we as modern Jews have to understand how much things have changed in the last two hundred years. Only in the 19th century, several factors come into play. The Jews are liberated from the ghettos and start to enter European society. The enlightenment creates a whole field called history, <laughs> scholarly history, as the whole world of academic scholarship and the idea of objective um, um, study become the norm in the emerging enlightenment of the modern era. And so Jewish historians start wanting to tell the history of the Jews and they have access to all the historical records. And so the book of Maccabees starts to be uh, incorporated again into Jewish awareness of Hanukkah. It's very convenient and actually kind of perfect because this also takes place as 
Jewish nationalism, Zionism, begins to take root and flourish. And the Zionist Jews are looking for historical and mythical, historical mythical antecedents for the new Jews they want to be. What are the new Jews the Zionists want to be? Fighters, military heroes, take back our country, right? Return from exile. And lo and behold, there are these ancient heroes that we can now rehabilitate as modern nationalist warriors, right? And so the Maccabees have an incredible revival in late 19th century um, Europe. There are clubs that are formed called Maccabee, the Maccabee societies where young Jews in Europe practice acrobatics and gymnastics and fitness and muscle and, and weightlifting. Remember, the whole image of the Jew was as a Luftmensch, as someone who hadn't who who wasn't a it wasn't had no physical might. And yet here's this story that we're rediscovering now. And so the Maccabees become the modern nationalist um, uh, ancient heroes on which we can um, uh, um, base our new struggle. So everything we know as modern Jews about the story of Hanukkah, the Maccabees and the light that lasted for eight days are a glorious mashup of the Greek histories that we have from the second century and the rabbinic telling. And that's how it goes, right? We're constantly kind of re, like Plato, we're just constantly restructuring our, our um, cultural heritage to uh, infuse our current activities with a sense of continuity and antiquity and meaning. And I don't say that negatively. I just, as those who've studied with me know, I love to separate as much as I can the historic from the mythic. Um, and then I can inhabit the mythic, but I can also understand and see in a way, for me, seeing the evolution of it all over centuries is just as wondrous as thinking about it as some timeless miracle. So then, of course, there's something else that happens just as the, as I mentioned before, just as the ancient um, uh, Maccabees understood that they wanted to essentially co-opt this solstice festival and make it Jewish. Well, here we are, Christmas becomes a giant deal in late 19th century Europe, thanks to, uh, Dickens, I understand from what I've read. Um, and uh, certainly, in, as, and then in our lifetimes, it's accelerated beyond the beyond in terms of uh, dominating, dominating consciousness of this time of year culturally. Uh, and so here we Jews have a holiday that's very pleasant, that comes at the same time that we can give to our children. 
right? And Hanukkah becomes a holiday of gift giving. That is new in Israel. There are no Hanukkah presents. Kids don't get presents on Hanukkah. It's like Hanukkah's fun in Israel. Schools are out. Um, everybody lights menorahs. Beautiful. But there's no competition with Christmas <laughs> in Israel. Which, in an incredible way, uh, is a testament to the success of Zionism. The desire to be a free people in our own land. And that's an aside that, uh, you know, regardless of the, of the degrading of so much of, 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 of the uh, uh, democratic institutions of Israel, just as we're seeing in our country and elsewhere that's happening in these years, the success of Zionism beyond our wildest dreams was the restoration of Jewish sovereignty and cultural hegemony in our ancestral homeland. Um, such that Hanukkah in Israel is not competing with Christmas. Whereas we know, most of us from our experience, that uh, we're trying to keep up with the, uh, keep up, keep up with our little holiday. So that so I wonder if there are any comments or questions that you have at this time. I'm remembering. Yes, Bobby. When I first studied um, the Old Testament, I remember a historian Josephus. Right, Josephus wrote in the first century CE. Mm -hmm. And and he wrote about Hanukkah, I believe. He did. Josephus, writing in about the year 50, 60, 70, 80 of the, um, uh, the late first century, is the one external source we have uh, who wrote about the history of the Jews and the Jewish wars um, that we can compare uh, to our internal Jewish sources as historians. And uh, Josephus talks about Hanukkah. Hanukkah was celebrated. Um, and I have to look at what Josephus is saying in the first century, whether he talks about the miracle of light. I'm not actually sure. Um, but uh, I'm not saying that Hanukkah wasn't celebrated. I'm saying that it's fascinating to observe how a festival that doesn't mention a miracle of light but is self-consciously situated on the solstice festival by its founders, the Hasmoneans, within a matter of a couple of centuries has become a story about the miracle of oil. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, and Deborah says, Rabbi, could you say more about the prohibition to mourn during Hanukkah? Because you're prohibited from mourning during festivals. Um, and, uh, and because even though this was not a biblically declared festival, it was a 
universally accepted festival, the, the, the laws of festivals were instituted. Uh, and uh, Myrna said, how can you really differentiate between history and myth from early times? Um, I think you can, Myrna, uh, if you do it humbly enough. Um, we know enough about how politics operates, how human beings operate, that we can compare ancient sources and speculate on historical processes um, while at the same time looking at how holidays also become mythical in their reach because they reach into something that's eternal about human, human experience and hope and striving. So yeah, I think you can do a fair job of that. But when you're dealing with history with a minimum of um, sources, then you have to be honest about the gaps you're trying to fill in with uh, reasonable speculation. And then of course, humble about the fact that I'm always gonna project my own sense of uh, how things work onto an ancient narrative. And anachronisms are very dangerous in that regard too. So all of that's true, Myrna. But that I don't think that should stop us from trying to reconstruct uh, that, that stuff. Roni says, excellent point of how Hanukkah is celebrated in Israel as not in competition with Christmas. As humor puts it, same theme as all Jewish holidays. They tried to kill us, we survived, now let's eat. Yes, the short guide to Jewish holidays. Ellen, did you find something? Yeah, um, Josephus writes in 94 CE, the right to worship appeared to us at a time when we hardly dared hope for it. That's the line um, in our time. Oh no, that's, that's <laughs> I thought I had more in Josephus. It was only that line. Okay, so in 94, Josephus writing for a Roman audience telling the history of the Jews said, read it one more time. The right to worship appeared to us at a time when we hardly dared hope for it. Yes, and that is the miracle of Hanukkah. Yeah. One way or the other, when we had hardly dared hope for it. And his, I mean, what you've shared about the history and then the wonderful musing of of myth and story and the history that we know is miraculous in itself. It's, it's, I mean, I've studied the book of Maccabees, but I, I never had the whole sense. And there's a lot of new things that I, you know, it's great, Jonathan, that you do this. Thank you. Oh, That's thank you, Ellen. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, let me just see what Roni said. Competition. Christmas brings large electric bills. Candles are used on Hanukkah. Everyone knows how to spell Christmas, but everyone wonders how to spell Hanukkah. <laughs> Thank you, Roni. Um, well, so next week, I want to share with you some, um, some more um, uh, spiritual uh, teachings, beautiful stuff about Hanukkah that we'll do next Thursday but I just couldn't resist um, sharing this with you one more time. Uh, uh, I think once a year isn't too bad uh, for hearing, uh, kind of getting a refresher on, um, as, as Ellen was saying, this remarkable story, if it was not for the Maccabees struggle against, which seemed like 
unachievable goal, you know, you got to keep the fire burning. You got to have hope. You got to put light, you got to light it. And then that's Hanukkah, whether you look at it historically or mystically or uh, any which way. Paul Bloom said, oh, let alone how to pronounce it, Rob says. Yeah. Paul Bloom said, Hanukkah today in America, is Hanukkah day today in America celebrated by Jews who would have been criticized by the Maccabees uh, for being too Hellenized, too American, too materialistic? Yes. That is one of the ironies of all of this. That is a really good point. Look, we, we are nothing if not modern Hellenized Jews, right? Uh, and so um, we probably would have been criticized. In fact, over the years, I've asked myself the question, I wonder which side I would have taken in that struggle. <laughs> who, you know, uh, blue states and red states, you know, it's like, who, it's like, they're so, again, if you don't have a sense of irony about all of this, um, I don't think you're, um, I think you're being way too, too, way too dimensional in the way you're approaching um, the kind of paradoxes of what brings us to this moment. And yet, and I'll just close with this, and yet we still have a sense of continuity with this thousands of years of history and this beautiful holiday and story that we're telling. Um, today, Hanukkah also can become a symbol of religious freedom, which is so American and uh, which we as Jews in America have embraced because we're a minority. Uh, so another opportunity to grab onto this, this long tail and keep it relevant to our needs at this moment. And I guess what I wanna say is that the beauty of having rituals is that we're lighting the candles. We're increasing the light. Our experience of the candlelight is actually what makes it alive for us. And then we attach ourselves to it, our story, our meaning, and we weave new threads into it. It's kind of like eating the matzah. It's like, eat the matzah, hear the shofar and then tell the story. Uh, so it's beautiful to have this, this tradition. Um, beautiful, okay, so it's after two. Um, let's do a prayer for healing. And uh, thank you all for being here.